0: It's good to be with you tonight and to have another opportunity to uh, present the Word of God and to deal with some things that I think uh, are important for us as a culture, especially in what is going on around us today. And as we look into uh, uh, media and we look at uh, the way society is going, I can't think of a more appropriate subject matter uh, to deal with. Uh, We talked about this subject a little bit our Yes Weekend, but I think it bears repeating, at least in going over uh, some of the main points that we discussed, because I want us as a congregational family to begin to understand our roles when it comes to encouraging and edifying the body, that is, from the eldest individual in the congregation to the not-so-eldest, the little ones that are running around and that are capping your knees from time to time. I realize that uh, I am new on the scene when it comes to parenting. My oldest child is 12, uh, and my youngest is 7. I've not had a lot of time in the arena for parenting, uh, so I wouldn't say that I am a subject matter expert, as some would say, but I did learn from some subject matter experts. Uh, There's bruises on my hind end from time to time to attest to that. Um, But I look at what's going on around us today and what has happened with the way our culture has shifted when it comes to parenting. Uh, There has been a drastic shift and and uh, basically an abandoning of those things that worked that we knew over the past worked in inculcating within our children those certain aspects of moral virtue and character. And what we see today is really the erosion of all of those things. I want us to talk about this evening, rearing godly children in a secular age. And specifically, understanding Generation Z, those that we are supposed to be bringing up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, those that we have relationships with, may not even be our own children. But how do we rear our children in a secular age... With godly principles, with fundamental principles, helping that they reach heaven. Well, we know that this has not always been the case. Even with God's people, when they came out of Egypt and were brought into the land of Canaan, after wandering 40 years in the wilderness, they finally get the opportunity through Joshua to go in and to conquer the land. As the book of Joshua closes, we know that they did not drive out all of the inhabitants of the land And a sad testament is what we find in chapter two, verses ten and eleven of the book of Judges. And also, all that generation were gathered to their fathers. And note what he says: There arose a generation after them who did not know Jehovah, nor even the works which he had done for Israel. And the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of Jehovah and served Baals or the Baalim. What happens when we lose sight of who God is? What happens when he is no longer front and center in the lives of God's people? What happens when we fail to teach the next generation about God and what he's done for us? You see, I'm often reminded of that statement that we're one generation away from apostasy. As I was growing up, I thought that was a little bit hyperbolic. I thought people were exaggerating. But look, Judges 2 and verse 10. Here it is. There arose a generation who knew not God. If we were to define the generation that was born between 1996 and 2010 today, we could adequately put them in the genre of not, going God, not knowing God, being secular. If we're making this generalization, Christians are the minority in that age group. Unaffiliated, the rise of the nuns, that is no uh, religious association or affiliation, is growing rapidly. So the question is, is how do we counter those things and how do we reach them where they are in order to bring them to an understanding of who God is? Well, first off, we have to know who they are. Would you believe that there is a generational gap between 1996 to 2010, those that were born in that, and you? I hope so. Everybody ought to be shaking their head. Would you believe that that generational gap is now much more pronounced through the rise of technology and the fact that they've always had something in their hand? They've had an iPod. Millennials had the iPod. Gen Z has the iPhone. You said it. They are socially distancing, not individually from their parents, but in the relationship, they're being more and more removed from their parents. And kids are growing up younger now than ever before. They're being exposed to things online, this unbelievable invention that we still don't have an understanding of what the ramifications are just yet. That being the internet or the interweb, as some of you like to call it. We don't understand what the implications are, but those young minds are being exposed at the most plastic point in their life. That is the most opportune time for them to be molded and shaped in the fashion of God and be influenced for a lifetime. They're being exposed to things that could hinder and handicap them for a lifetime. There is a generational gap. Part of it is because we don't believe that there is that big of a difference between our childhood and theirs. Grandparents have a much larger obstacle to overcome in relating to their grandkids But now even parents, the days of running and playing in the street and going out and doing those kinds of things like I did when I was growing up are gone pretty much unless there's strict supervision. And so this generational gap is there, but now technology has made it more pronounced. Grandparents have little to no frame of reference most of the time with their grandchildren in today's society. Would you believe that? Because they're growing up in two completely different worlds. Two completely different worlds. Parents are closer to understanding their children. That is, they know about all the gadgets and the gizmos and the tech, and they know what it is and what social media is. But the vast majority of parents still don't share the majority of experiences as their kids. How immersed are they in social media? What is affecting them on a daily basis? How are they being molded and shaped by their peer group in a way that used to never happen? See, I, I remember I wasn't there, so I won't say that I was privy to this, but if you look back at history, in the early 1900s, kids were schooled in what kind of schoolroom? How many rooms were there? One. So if that's the case, how many people are, and age differences are in that schoolroom? You have all the way from high school down to elementary school. And elementary school was very different than what it is today, or grammar school. Uh, But you had this broad spectrum of individuals. In the 1920s, we decided to move away from that system and localize each age in a particular classroom. Why? Because it made teaching easier. We can appeal to this same age range. But what did that take away? That took away the generational influence of those older in their group and those younger and the ability for them to get to know and develop relationships that were outside their own individual peer group. And that has had a lasting impact on what we're seeing today. 43% when it comes to their self-perceptions and how they view themselves, Gen Z. I think this is important to understand. 43% of them see personal achievement and 42% see hobbies as most important to their sense of self, let that sink in, almost half believe that personal achievement or their hobbies, that could also include sports or otherwise, is most important to their sense of self and well-being. What happens though when they fail? What happens when the grades drop and they can't compete? What happens when those hobbies are taken away or they're lost? Or what happens when they don't achieve like they want to? Would you believe that in Oxford, or actually in Harvard now, uh, they are told to give certain students an A, even if they don't deserve it, because they're afraid that they will commit suicide? Because their self-expectations are that high. That's the world we live in today, folks. And so 42 to 43% have a vested interest in how they see themselves in their hobbies and their personal achievement. Only one in three see family background or religion, I wanna focus on the religion aspect, as an identifier. And even so, more than half see their parents as role models. Interesting dichotomy here. They don't see religion as a marker, but what do they hold up as a role model? Their parents, over half see their parents as a role model. Parents, if you love God and are putting God first, what do you think your children will see? They will see you loving God and putting Him first. And if they view you as a role model, they will learn without you saying a word. But it's got to start with the parents, those who they see day in and day out. Those who they are closest to and have the greatest trust in at the time. Those with different ethnic backgrounds saw those as somewhat identifying and those engaged Christians see their faith. Now look at the wording here as something to identify with, but not the most discerning factor. What about goals and priorities? Well, We look at what our goals and our standards should be. Exodus chapter 20, the Bible is very clear. You look at those verses, verses 2 through 7. And I I want us to notice something here in this passage. Jump over there to Exodus chapter 20. Look at what he says beginning in verse 2. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. The first five verses that we see here in Exodus 20 deal with the excellency, the premier of God, God being number one. We look at Gen Z and their goals and priorities. They're less likely to want to drive. Why? Because more than 25% of seniors in high school do not have their driver's license. That's not a priority. What is their priority? Look at what it says. 41% are looking forward to, and we need to emphasize, underline, underscore, this particular word, freedoms. Not necessarily the responsibilities of adulthood. They want to be out on their own. They want to be independent. If they've grown up young, early on in their lives, if they've been exposed to all these things and believe that they are little adults running around, it's no wonder that they want to be out on their own earlier. There is a higher priority on career and education. And look at where there is less of a focus. Marriage and family. What do you need to perpetuate a godly home? You need a godly family. You need a focus and an emphasis on it. Of those that are engaged Christians, 46% say spiritual maturity is a goal. Read that again. Of those that are engaged, less than half Say spiritual maturity is a goal. Those that come to services regularly don't believe that spiritual maturity is something to be sought after. Culture has gotten a hold of them, compared to the 16% of the unchurched. Of engaged Christians, only 29% want to be married before 30, and only 16% want to have children. That's of engaged Christians. Most of Gen Z cite parents or other family members as their role models, but six out of the top ten reasons have to do with career or financial success. Again, not character, not conduct, not godliness, but they're influenced by the opportunity to get material wealth and gain. But here's the thing. If the parents are still role models, can that be turned around? Yes, it can. We can put some emphasis there and turn those things around. You might be wondering about morality and values. 24% believe that morality changes with culture. That's a quarter believe that morality is not static, but it's fluid. It changes over time. 21% believe it depends on the individual. I become my own moral standard. 34% of the unchurched, while 77% of engaged Christians believe lying is morally wrong. Think about that. When you were growing up, was lying wrong? (laughs) When I was growing up, lying was wrong. There was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That was an absolute standard. Now, look how far that has fallen. 29% of unchurched, while 80% of engaged Christians believe abortion is wrong. Note the disparity in 38% of unchurched, while 91% of engaged Christians believe marriage is a lifelong commitment. But with the rampancy of divorce, it's no wonder that they believe that they don't have to stay with their same spouse the entire life. 21% of unchurched, while 76% of engaged Christians believe sex before marriage is morally wrong. And 20% of unchurched, while 77% of engaged Christians believe that homosexuality is morally wrong. What in the world is going on with the other percentage here? seventeen percent But that's where they are. Jesus in John 8 and verse 32 says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Would you believe that Gen Z does not believe in an absolute moral truth? They do not believe in an absolute standard by which one ought to adhere. 37% of Gen Z believe it is impossible to know if God is real. Where are the apologetics classes that we need to be teaching our youth and bringing them up in and helping them come to an understanding that it is not irrational or illogical to believe that God created, but rather the opposite? It's irrational and illogical to believe that something came from nothing. And yet, so many of them are holding on to the ideas of postmodernism and the science as it is so called. That is out there today about evolution and the Big Bang Theory and all of those other elements. 66% believe that a person can be wrong about something they sincerely believe. Down from the 85% of boomers. Which means that the idea of an absolute is eroding. There are a growing number of people who think that believing in something makes it true. Would you believe that? 46% 46% say they need factual evidence to support beliefs. It's no wonder that they have a hard time balancing what the Bible says with what they believe science to say. If you don't believe in an absolute standard, it's going to be very difficult to come to the bottom or the truth. What about church? What about elements of religion? Among churchgoers, one time in the last month, if that's how we're defining it, 82% say yes, it is the place to find answers to a meaningful life. 82% say yes, it's relevant. 81% say a sense of community in the church is important. Only 35%, again, of churchgoers believe traditional coat and tie was important. Okay, Among all Gen Z, 59% say church is not relevant. Look at that, 60% of the group as a whole... Do not believe that church is relevant to a meaningful or lasting life. Those that do come want to belong. Irrelevance is a word used a lot in relation to church, faith, and truth. The question arises, what are we doing to encourage grit and spiritual resilience? If this is their view toward the church, that is the church that Jesus founded, it's no wonder that they're living in this idea of postmodernism and they're finding it delightful. Why they can do whatever they want to do. They're not beholden to an absolute standard. If you don't believe in an absolute truth, then there's nothing to anchor or more you. And you can go and do whatever it is that you want to do. I want to really get to the crux of the issue tonight, though. How do we reach our young people? Because that's really the question at hand. How do we reach our young people? Is there a way to do it? Because you look at some of these statistics and they're disconcerting to say the least, aren't they? Especially when you lump in the category of those that attend services at least once a month. And the percentages that are given for us. It's scary. I will tell you this. I want you to be encouraged. There is a continuing trend that is growing. And our young people are becoming more and more conservative, believe it or not. There was a day when you had the helicopter parent. I don't know if you've heard that term or if you know that term. But it's that parent that's over their child. They're always protecting them. They're always trying to make sure that nothing happens to them. When they fall, they're right there to pick them up, put a band-aid on it. Which to some degree, protecting our children is what we ought to be doing. But in reaction to that mentality, you now have a parent who has gone completely hands-off. And they are the neglectful Parent, they would rather err on the side of not being as protective than to be overprotective of their child. I will tell you this in a time when our children need the most protection, that's from all of the influences that they are now being inundated with, parents generally speaking have become less so. And in so doing, have exposed them to things that would influence them for a lifetime. So how do we reach them when there's so many competing views out there? They need reasons for faith. When you were growing up and you asked your mom and dad why you had to do something, and they said, what's the favorite word that starts with a B? Because. Was that satisfying? Did that scratch that itch and say, oh, now I know. Thank you so much for elucidating to me why I had to do that. No, not at all. Guess what? When it comes to matters of faith, they need more than just a because. Yeah, I understand. There are some things that we don't understand at at all in the Word of God. If you understand Ezekiel's wheel, get with me after this, please, and we'll talk. I do understand that there are some things that are challenging. But our young people need more than just a because God said so. Now, is that sufficient from time to time? Yes, it is. And that ought to be sufficient. But are they going to need to reason through those things? Yes. What does the Bible tell us in Isaiah 16? Come, let us what together reason together saith the Lord. At a time when our young people are being exposed to views that are contrary to the biblical worldview, they need an adult, someone that they trust, someone that loves them, to sit down with them and reason through these things. Explain the apologetic value of certain elements in the Word of God and why it is not a foolhardy endeavor to trust in God. And when you do that, when they have a reason and when they're armed with a reason, guess what? They can stand a lot more flat footed against those that are opposing it. We've equipped them. Here's another thing that they need our young people need relationships with their parents and others walking in the faith. I don't mean necessarily exclusively with their peer group, I mean intergenerational relationships. People in the church that are older than them that they look up to, that they care about, and that they can go to and talk to. You might have questions. They might have questions that they don't want to ask mom and dad. But they know that they can go to Joe James and say, Joe, I've got a question. I need to talk to you, brother. Or they can go to one of the elders who've been there, who are a stalwart, have been there the whole time, and say, I have a question. I need to talk. Guess what? That won't happen if our young people are ignored. I I used to look at the idea of, of segregating parts of the congregation in a very negative way, and I still, for the most part, do. And here's why we're taking the most vulnerable part of our congregation, excising them from the healthiest part, and expecting them to thrive. They need to be with the body. And they need everyone in the congregation to encourage them to fidelity. And they need to see it exercised in a life. The things that you don't like about church, don't tell your kids. They don't need to hear it. They need to be shown how to create healthy spiritual habits and disciplines. Things disciples do. Prayer, devotion, reading. I'll be honest, my parents never quote taught us how to do this. It was just a way of life growing up that was always there. And so when I got to seeing, okay, well, we need to sit down and have, well, we do that. We have devotional time in the car. We play 20 questions. Hayden asks us every question that he can think of about God um, or about the Bible. We have singing. We have devotionals together as a family, singing songs, singing church songs that they've learned and grown up with. We pray together at night. We pray when we're grief stricken. We pray for others when we know that they're struggling. In fact, there's several of you in here that have had Charlotte and Lila and Hayden prayers go up on your behalf. You don't know it. But how do we reach them? Now it's getting personal and now I'm tearing up because, guys, this is close to home. These are our babies. We want them to grow up with healthy spiritual habits. We want them ultimately to go to heaven. But they need to be shown by mom and dad how this happens. They've got to be shown by you also that this is important. Because if not, again, who's the most influential person in their life right now? Mom and dad? Who's their role model? Mom and dad. What do they see when mom and dad do these things? Or don't do these things? They begin to develop a sense of priority. What parents allow in moderation, kids will take to excess. Remember that. What parents allow in moderation, kids will take to excess. And when they see you neglecting your spiritual life, then where do you think they're headed? They need to have strong examples in the home of godly conduct. Not just once or twice a week, Sunday or Wednesday night. There's got to be constancy. How do you learn things? How do we tell children in school learn things? The best way to learn things? Repetition, 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 right? It's got to be reinforced over and over and over again in the home. How do we keep them though i believe wholeheartedly that god's people need to see the importance of caring for the young in our midst and this extends not only to those that are physically young our babes our youth but to those who are spiritually young in christ this is the same thing that we do when it comes to them They need to be surrounded by the congregation, brought in and cared for. In the Old West, when the wagons went west, what was the best way to interrupt a wagon train? You hit the weakest wagon, right? And then you can separate them out and you can take care of each one individual and pick them off. Why did they begin to circle the wagons when they saw the Indians coming? Anybody know? You don't have a single front. It's a lot harder to get in and to infiltrate when everything is surrounded. But that's the church. The church ought to insulate all of those who are struggling spiritually while those who are strong meet the opposition head on and care for those in our midst. That doesn't just apply to the young, but also the young spiritually. And we need to remember that they matter, that they're important. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Deuteronomy 6. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in your heart, and thou shalt teach them just a little bit to your children, diligently to thy children, and thou shalt talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. How do we keep them? In Judges 2 and verse 10, didn't happen. This right here did not happen. And there arose a generation who knew not the Lord or the works that He wrought. And in consequence, the result was the whole generation was gone. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but in the opposite do what? Bring them up in the nurture... An admonition of the Lord. We think of mothers being nurturing, don't we? And that tends to be a feminine trait. But how does Paul use that word here? He says, fathers be nurturing. Bring them up in the nurture and correction. There is a point in which our children need to be corrected. But first and foremost, they need to be cared for and loved. Especially when it comes to their relationship with God and the nurture and admonition of the Lord. How do we keep them? We need to provide opportunities to develop relationships with everyone in the church. It's been said and studies have been done about social groups or gatherings and how likely someone is to stay in a group. And what they came away with, what the main observation was, was that an individual is more likely to stay at a particular social group or function if they have at least 12 contacts there that they can rely on or reliably go see or talk to. Think about that. 12. If you come in here as a visitor for the first time, you don't have any. But when they leave, they should have over 300, right? I hope. We've got to surround those who feel isolated, make them not isolated. Guess what? That includes our youth. What's the number one statement about why suicides occur? What do they say? I feel what? Starts with an A, ends with alone. I feel alone. Nobody sees, nobody cares. We've got to provide opportunities to develop relationships. Give people your time. Give people your ear. Take the time out to be there for them. People you don't know, you've never met before. Why are we doing this? Who's coming to dinner? I want to mix things up a bit, but it's an opportunity for you to be in a home that you haven't ever really been in. Or maybe haven't been in a long time got to provide opportunities to develop relationships with everyone in the church. And they were continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. And in the breaking of the loaves and in prayers. And fear came on every soul. And many wonders and miracles took place through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things common. And they sold their possessions and goods and distributed them to all according as anyone had need. And continuing with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They shared food with all gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Is there an age on here? No. No age. It was everyone together. Encouraging. It was the church. How do we keep them? We continue to encourage them in the midst of a difficult world. Continue to encourage them 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, Peter would tell us there, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with fear. I want to modify that a little bit. When our young people come to you and ask you a Bible question, we ought to be prepared to sit down and talk with them about whatever it is that's on their mind. Because that little soul is searching and they want to know. And we have an opportunity to influence them in the most profound way possible. Ultimately, Proverbs 22 and verse 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he shall not depart from it. How do we reach our youth? How do we reach them? We've got to overcome the societal influences that are out there and show them that they do have loving, caring family and church family, and that it is not irrelevant to their lives. It's not irrelevant to them having a meaningful life. In fact, they need to understand and realize that Jesus came to give them the abundant life. John 10 and verse 10. He says, The thief comes not, but for to steal and to kill and destroy. But I am come that they might have life, and might have it more abundantly. If you realize tonight that your focus, your priority has not been on the God of heaven, then we offer you that opportunity to make that known tonight. If you need the prayers of the congregation in any way, we are here to surround you, to circle the wagons, to insulate you, and help you fight off the adversary. And if you need to put Christ on an immersion, responding to that invitation, that gospel call, then won't you come tonight and make that known if you have that need as we stand and sing our song of encouragement.